0: The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpena Search, Europe's premier talent search firm dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. It's a real pleasure to uh, welcome Zach Erlacher on um, today's show. Uh, now, Zach's helped grow a number of software companies to billion-dollar exits. Including Active Software, MySQL, Zendesk, most recently, Duo Security. Uh, and he's been an advisor and board member for many other successful VC backed uh, companies, including HubSpot and Sugar CRM. And he's even written a rock opera. Now Zach's also worked with many tier one VCs, including Benchmark Capital, CRV, Index Ventures, and Matrix partners and he now lectures at the University of Michigan on entrepreneurial leadership so Zach entrepreneur and rock star a, a very warm welcome
1: <laughs> Thank you Gary uh, the rock opera is just a sideline it's uh, more of a hobby than anything else
0: we'll delve into that a little towards the end of this conversation perhaps if we have time but the, the focus would be more on the on the business side um, so Zach You've got a background in product management and marketing. How has that background helped you in your more recent roles of of scaling companies globally and leading them to huge exits?
1: Yeah, I think the, the focus on product has actually been very helpful to me over the years. Because whenever I join a new company and try to understand what's going on, the first thing I do is I get out there and I meet with customers. And you know you can form all kinds of opinions about what's correct or what's what needs improvement, but what really matters is what the customers want. And customers are not shy about telling you what they like or dislike about a product or the problems they were trying to solve. And so, quite often, uh, I, I found it very useful to just get out there, meet customers, and try to immerse myself in their world so I understand. The pressures that they face, whether it's you know security concerns or, or whether it's how do I scale my technology, but really listening to those things with with great attention, and then deciding okay now what should we do from a sales perspective, or product or marketing and so on.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to see you, you've worked your way up through product management in particular because in the UK and I think in Europe, it's a far less common path to leadership roles than it is in the States where you have the perhaps the most famous exponent of that career path being Steve Jobs. Is it something you you've come across a lot, people who've excelled in product management and gone
1: on like you to being successful business leaders? Well, it is perhaps a little less common than than people who come out, you know, more from a uh, sales perspective or sh- straight engineering perspective. It's also, uh, you know, for anyone who has has been hiring in this area, it's very hard to to find great product managers. And so, I, w- one of the things when I meet younger people earlier in their career, I often describe product management as a great career path because. Uh, companies are always looking for people with that particular s- set of skills kind of the intersection between uh the business side and marketing and really understanding the products so i guess it is a little bit rare here also
0: i've been giving just that career advice to my 17 year old son actually product management or data science um those are the two areas i've recommended he focuses on because uh, Huge demand and huge um, supply-demand imbalance in in both those areas. So I'm I'm on the same page with you there. So you've had success helping companies like MySQL and Zendesk expand internationally, and indeed, as I said before, achieve billion-dollar exits. Pretty awesome track record. If you are mentoring a technology company founder, someone looking to scale globally. What key pieces of advice would you give them?
1: There's no doubt that, for example, at Zendesk, when we chose to expand internationally, that gave us a big advantage for long-term growth. And the reason we chose to, I mean, Zendesk was, a, you know, Mikkel and the founders were from Denmark, of course, somewhat of a famous story. And so we had some early success in Europe. But we really just had a couple of uh, employees doing technical support, and customer service in the UK. And I felt that it was important strategically to get out ahead of potential competition in these markets. Meaning, you know, we knew there would be competition and what we called the uh, Zendesk clones or imitators. And we want to avoid sort of facing a multi-headed hydra where you would have you know, a small local competitor in France and in Germany and in the UK and in Scandinavia, et cetera. So fairly early on, we hired uh, a great uh, general manager in London, a gentleman named Matt Price. And he's still with Zendesk today, many years later, one of the long-ranking employees, although now he's, he's partly based in the U.S., and it was very important for us as we launched uh, Zendesk in Europe, to really start with great customer service, because that was kind of uh, one of the key differentiators for us. And in building out the the team there, I was very conscious of saying, you know they're they're in London, they're serving all of Europe. They need to be able to make decisions locally. And not try to have us back at headquarters in San Francisco making decisions about how they should deploy their resources. So it was really uh, being conscious about the, the structure and giving them the authority. And if we were operating, you know, eighty percent consistently across regions, that was good enough for me. But we certainly didn't want to try to micromanage every decision. So you know, when they have a uh, an important customer to deal with, like Sainsbury's. I didn't want people in the U.S. saying, "Wait, what's Sainsbury's?" and trying to explain, <laughs> you know, who these customers were and why it mattered.
0: You and mean you not- don't have Sainsbury's in Silicon Valley?
1: <laughs> no, no, we don't. I-, I was familiar with them, but it's just a good example. And similarly, you don't want to have a lag time of decision making. You know, startups have to move quickly, and if you're waiting every You know, evening to, to, well, we need to talk to the US and then we're going to lose 24, not 24 hours, but we're going to lose 10 or 12 hours uh, waiting to hear back and then having a back and forth volley over several days that would slow things down. But Matt did a, a fantastic job growing the business there. And it was really a little bit of a secret weapon for us because we were able to grow the European business at a very fast rate. And I was surprised at this time that other SaaS companies like uh, Box and HubSpot weren't investing in their European expansion at that time. They did later, of course, and and those businesses proved to be very successful. But we were one of the rare businesses that chose to invest fairly early on.
0: And what's your view on the idea that to be successful... When you expand a software or SaaS business internationally, you need to place someone pretty damn senior, preferably one of the founders, in the new territory, in the new region, so that you export your company's DNA. You clearly didn't do that when you brought Matt in. So, have you tried that with any of the uh, other companies that you've been involved with?
1: I would say actually, imprinting the DNA is vital to this success. And maybe even taking a step, further back. Before you expand internationally, you have to understand how your how your business operates and scales in its current location. So we had scaled up our operations in the US. We understood how to grow our leads, our visibility, our sales team in the US. And we wanted to prove it in the US to make sure we could expand it. And then we we sort of decided, okay, now we will expand into Europe. So one of the mistakes people make is they they start expanding geographically before they really understand how their their business operates meaning who is their target customer their sweet spot that, you know understanding the competitors and so on. So we had a good handle on that and then the, the Matt Price was somebody I had worked with previously and so he really understood our business in the US and was able to bring some of those values. And we had an early employee, Michael Hansen, who was just a fantastic guy. And he spent quite a bit of time in the early days in London, as well as in uh, other cities and other countries, imprinting that DNA. And he was a senior guy. He was kind of a force of nature, uh, very gregarious, uh, very friendly guy, but also with strong opinions. And he understood the culture of how we take care of customers at Zendesk. And it was really, he hired the early employees, the first few people doing customer service for us and imprinted many of the patterns that helped make us successful both in the U.S and in Europe. And then later, Michael had worked for the founder, Mikkel, in San Francisco, and then he worked for me. And then at some point, he said, I just got to get out of Silicon Valley. And he moved back to Australia, where he had lived for many years. And he, ex- he built our uh, Asia PAC operations out of Melbourne. And again, he, he just he had that core DNA, and he built a fantastic organization in that region. And so it was actually very critical to have that kind of core DNA. It doesn't necessarily have to be a senior person. So example, at uh, Duo Security, we were operating in Ann Arbor, Michigan. That's where the company was founded. And the founders, uh, Doug and Johno, were from that region. We, I joined the company. There were probably about uh, you know 20 or 25 employees primarily in that region, but a couple in different cities here or there. And when we chose to expand into California or Austin, we made a point of sending a few employees, salespeople, one or two marketing people, support people into other cities to make sure that the values we had about taking care of customers, how we sold security, not selling on fear which is something that you find sometimes in the cybersecurity industry, really made sure that those key traits were found in our new operations. And that helped us tremendously. And of course, you know, it was, uh, I think it was February in that winter in, in Michigan and getting a few, uh, younger employees to relocate to California was relatively easy because, you know, it was beautiful weather and getting out of the cold of Michigan and, uh, it made for a great uh, expansion into that region. So time of year and paying close attention to the
0: seasons can be an important part of your <laughs> expansion strategy.
1: You, uh, who wouldn't want to be in California to escape from uh, Michigan winters? you know. But I would contrast that You know, uh, maybe one misstep we had expanding Duo into EMEA. We hired a great general manager, Henry, who's a fantastic guy. Uh, we ramped up very quickly. We were surprised at how quickly we were able to hire employees to build out a, a sales organization and initially had great success there. But after a couple of quarters, the growth kind of slowed down. And it took us a while to figure out what the what the issue was. And we we well, you know, different people, myself or Jim, the head of sales, or Doug and John, the founders, would travel occasionally. To Europe to meet customers or speak at conferences, it wasn't hitting on all cylinders for a period of time. And we couldn't figure out what the issue was. And then eventually, uh, I sent one of our early US employees, uh, Patrick, a gentleman who had run the uh, system engineer team successfully in the US. And he was able to spend a fair amount of time there. He relocated his family. And of course, what we discovered was something we had o- overlooked which was they just didn't have the the training and experience in security. There were great people, good technical people, good salespeople. But when we got to complex security issues, it was really out of their depth. And then that was sort of the kind of reminder of, oh, yeah, in the early days in the U.S., of course, we had access to the founders, Doug and John, to answer really tough technical questions but we didn't have that capability in in Europe, and somehow we had overlooked it. And with the time zones and the culture, you know, people weren't didn't really want to reach out for that kind of expertise. And of course, sometimes you don't know what you don't know. So the people who were on the ground were very good people, but they weren't always aware that oh, I guess I guess I don't have that knowledge of expertise. Instead, they just avoided certain types of uh, sales opportunities. Or customers, or probably just lack credibility. But we did get that fixed. Eventually, added some more uh, technical capabilities there, more training, and then that organization just took off and was was beating its numbers regularly every quarter.
0: It was good that you you got it fixed. You got it fixed through training and bringing some specialists in with the right the right expertise, as opposed to it, kicking it, but a but load it of people really, out.
1: You know, there's some people who who maybe uh, didn't didn't have the right abilities, but mostly it was putting somebody there, boots on the ground, living there in London, sitting with them all the time. Not just parachuting in, because if you just send it, send somebody over for a week to do a training course, you know what happens is after a couple of weeks they're asking questions and there's nobody there to ask the questions. You really have to to expand successfully into new geographies, it requires cloning the successful DNA. And that means taking, you know, a couple, maybe just one or two of your best and brightest employees and getting them to live in a different city or country for a year or, or even two years. And of course, you know, if you're young in your career, what's more exciting than moving abroad and, you know, living in London and, you know, starting uh, to, to explore other geographies. So Patrick had a great time of it also.
0: I know you've done a lot of mentoring over the years, both formally through being an advisor or a, or a board director and, and also informally. Have you yourself had mentors who've helped you develop your ideas and your approach?
1: Well, I I certainly do try to be generous of my time to founders of companies. Uh, Sometimes, you know, in the early days of of a company, you know, you have your board of directors or your investors, but, you know, investors don't always have a tremendous operating background. And so, my view is if I can help founders think about issues or frame the issues successfully, maybe that will reduce how much time it takes them to solve certain issues and uh, they can be more successful. For myself personally there, there are definitely some role models that I had at different stages of my career. I don't know that I would say they were necessarily uh, mentors, but at times um, I remember a very important executive a guy named Bill Jordan when I was at uh, Borland many many years ago and he he ran a uh, kind of business development corporate development role in the company a very strategic thinker never seemed to get too ruffled or uh, uh, emotional, very logically driven, very thoughtful gentleman, and so occasionally, when I was dealing with difficult issues, I would just try to imagine, well, how would Bill deal with this? And so it's more uh, as a role model, I would say, uh, but you know definitely you learn through your career and you learn from your your bosses quite often. I've had bosses who were very influential in shaping my thinking. I think, you know, MySQL was a great management team and Martin Mikos is a tremendous leader. So there's there's been lots of different influences for me.
0: And tell me about your recent move into academia. What, uh, what prompted that and how are you enjoying that?
1: It's a bit of a, a detour for me. It's not uh, necessarily a, a second career, but, you know, I've taught guest lectures at Stanford and at University of Michigan and other schools over time. And I got to know the people who run a really interesting group at University of Michigan. It's called the Center for Entrepreneurship, and it's part of the School of Engineering. And I've also taught over at the School of Business, which has a a great reputation. But the idea is to help expose students to... Entrepreneurship as a a possible way of life or career, because you know the U.S. is a a vast uh, country, but a lot of the startups get started in California or in on the East Coast in New York and Boston, and we want to have a role model for students in the Midwest, where they might otherwise only see, you know, the Midwest is famous for having a lot of. Fortune 500 companies, uh, very large automotive firms and stuff. And we want students to know that they they could start their own business or work in a startup as a career and not have to leave the region. And you know my wife is from Michigan and that's part of the reason that we moved back to Michigan a few years ago, and the idea was to help create more tech jobs in the Midwest. Now I ha- have had a very successful career in California and uh, Silicon Valley is a very, very special place, but it's also become very crowded and very expensive. And so for many companies, you know, it used to be sort of the feeling of if you're going to build a startup, you have to be in Silicon Valley. And I think that's been proven untrue in many cases you've had very successful companies uh, exact target coming out of indianapolis you've had uh, very successful companies in austin atlanta boston new york dc all over uh, not to mention europe you know with uh, companies like spotify and companies uh, in london etc but we want to make it encourage people to do what's right for their business and if they can learn the skills in university or at least get exposure, maybe that'll help shape their thinking. And so the students are, are uh, they're very good students. They're, they're coming from a technical background. Uh, of course, they're young and sometimes uh, ha- having a, a lot of experience in an area, you sort of remember, okay, for these kids, there was no time before Amazon. Or Google, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they don't know what Netscape was or a desktop software. You know, they've only existed in today's era of smartphones and you know uh, connectivity and, and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, you have to make sure you keep it relevant to to their interests. And I have no doubt that some of these kids will create businesses or go work for businesses. You know, Duo is, of course, a a good shining example of a billion dollar exit in ann arbor so that's that's a a nice example and it it maybe gives gives kids confidence that okay there are other companies here in the in the region uh maybe they can create the next you know duo or or zendesk and so on
0: well it'd be great to hear about some uh, successful tech ventures coming out of the midwest i'll uh, I'll, uh, listen out for for that but and you mentioned earlier on that this, for you, is not a second career. The academic involvement is uh, a detour. So what are your plans for the next two to three years, Zach?
1: I certainly like teaching, uh, but I would say the, the most fun I have is advising and mentoring early stage startups. And I, I do a lot of this. That's how I actually got involved in Duo was originally I was just an advisor to Doug and John informally and then formally, and then I helped them uh, launch a pretty important product uh, and then, you know, kind of join the company on a permanent basis. But, uh, you know, I get calls quite often from, from founders that they, they might be uh, have started their business in uh, uh, Berlin or in uh, Paris. Uh, They're thinking about moving to the U S or maybe they've already moved to the U S and sometimes they, they, they might, they might be growing already ranges from a million in revenue to uh, five, 10, 15 million. And they're hitting growth problems, you know, and, and sometimes we talk about those issues and I can practically finish their sentence for them and say, okay, so you've probably run into this issue and they'll be like, yeah, exactly. What do I do? So I really enjoy working with, with founders, rolling up my sleeves, helping out, and trying to guide them along the right path. And, you know, if uh, one of these companies becomes a very rapid growth, then maybe I'll dive back in and do a full-time operating role. I mean, I, I don't really try to predict exactly the, the future of what I'm going to do, but I would say, you know, it's always involve, involving uh, technology. And I try to do new things. So, you know, when I, um, you know, we sold MySQL for a billion dollars to Sun Microsystems, I got a lot of calls from NoSQL companies, you know, uh, and I know a lot of those uh, folks at Mongo and Couchbase and Cloudera and DataStacks, and, you know, I, I would advise them and help them with their business models, but, for me, I want to do something different. and so that's why I got into Zendesk, which was a cloud-based system. and after Zendesk, you know I got into security because I felt that was something important. So you know, I don't know what the next area for me is, but it's probably something that will be a little new. And you know, I may continue to teach on the side just as a way to continue to um, meet younger people, because I think as you get more experience in the industry, it's easy to become jaded. And Gary, probably you've met people in your career where you know, they get to be a certain age and they're just like, oh, well, this is the way it is. And back in the day, it was much better and you know, griping and complaining. <laughs> and I think it's very important to always get exposure to new technologies and new elements of business so that you, you have a fresh perspective on things.
0: Really important to keep fresh. Uh, I can't, I can't argue with that. And I know that one of the things you did a few years ago to freshen things up in in your life was to go out and write a, a rock opera. I really want to hear more about that. How did that come about? <laughs> and um, well, just tell us more about your rock opera.
1: Yeah. So uh, a buddy of mine, Rob, Rob and I, he runs a company called Service Rocket. We happen to uh, play in a band together that we created called the electric buddha band and he's from australia and we had a couple of other australian guys that we would occasionally get together in his office on a friday night and play three chord rock and eventually the band sort of fizzled out for various reasons to do with uh, visas and we're all busy with our businesses and then i moved to to michigan i said to rob why don't we each write 10 songs and, you know, we'll get to the end of the year and we'll try to record something. And I was living, uh, you know, with my wife in in uh, northern Michigan, and it was the coldest winter on record in 80 years. It was bloody cold and miserable. <laughs> and I started writing songs. And, you know, one of the songs was about uh, imagining this future of 50 years of winter and how cold it was and... Next thing I knew, I'd, I'd written ten songs, and Rob hadn't written any, so I wrote another ten songs, <laughs> and then I, I realized it was it wasn't just an album; it was a rock opera, meaning it had a story and it had characters. And of course, we'd never done anything like this before, but you know, together we had fifty years of combined listening to rock music, and thought, well, how hard can it be? You know, it's just three chord rock. You know, I wrote all these songs and, and then we started recording them. And we just did it in GarageBand with a total budget of about $200. Uh, and that was primarily for a, a USB mic and a USB guitar uh, cord. And then, uh, you know, we, we put it on uh, Kickstarter. And that was just something I want to experiment with crowdfunding and get some exposure to that. And then we had it uh, professionally mixed I was actually able to hire a a symphony, a 30 uh, piece symphony orchestra to record one of the songs that was also just done over the web. It was just kind of a very cool thing to see this uh, Western European symphony orchestra from Lisbon, Portugal uh, record one of my songs. I just sent them an MP3 file and they created the score and recorded it. And it was, it was just the coolest thing ever. And and then I, I did the preliminary mixes then got it uh, kind of professionally mastered and you know created the artwork and stuff. It's just a fun project. and in fact, I, I think and, and now it took two years, you know, and I was back at duo working and doing this on evenings and weekends and stuff. But I think it's very important, particularly as you get uh, further in your career and you know to look for projects, side projects that have a creative element to it. You know sometimes people today think about, well, okay, I should have a side hustle, a business venture, maybe a website that I'm doing on the side. I actually think it's important for people to have a creative project on the side because there's there's something you get out of that an energy and excitement and enthusiasm, and it it helps you look at things in a different way. And uh, this is one of the things that you know I'm as proud of uh, the rock opera as. You know, anything we did at MySQL or Duo, it's just, it's a different kind of venture. It's certainly, <laughs> it's, it's not a financially successful uh, venture, but on the other hand, it's it's a hobby that paid for itself. And, you know, if people are interested, it's it's all, it's an open source rock opera. And so they can listen to it free or download it or use the songs in movies or whatever. It's at uh, www.rock-opera.com. And maybe that'll inspire people to pursue their own creative projects, whether it's musical or movies or writing or something else.
0: A fascinating story about your uh, creative project and the idea of 50 years of winter reminds me of Game of Thrones. So if you thought about uh, reaching out to the team behind Game of Thrones and and asking them if they'd be interested in using uh, the songs from the rock
1: opera. Uh, you know, I never thought of that, but that you know, maybe that was a subconscious influence uh because that show certainly has become very very popular. I don't actually watch it myself, but uh certainly lots of people I know are are obsessed with that show.
0: Sounds to me like a, a perfect match, so uh who knows, you could you could uh, appear in their uh, final season. Anyway, I love that idea about Having a creative project on the side is something important for all of us as we progress through careers or business leadership that's a an unusual but very valid suggestion from you so uh, yeah it was in- interesting to hear about your experiences there so uh, well, we'll wrap up there it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today Zach and uh, I'd like to wish you good luck with uh, with your academic initiatives and also with whatever startup or scale up you jump into next.
1: Thanks, Gary. Great talking with you.
0: This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpena Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high impact senior talent.